but it takes longer than it used to. And it doesn't go as smoothly as it used to, and it takes a little bit more effort to get through things that used to be more enjoyable, right? So then, after a couple of years of that, I was like, hey, I should do some tune-up. So I got the lawnmower up on blocks, cleaned out the junk underneath, sharpened the blade, pulled it off, you know, took care of it, fixed it, did some maintenance, and then the next time I mowed after doing it, it was like, oh yeah, right, that's how it's supposed to go. Man, that was easier. Man, that did a better job. Man, that did a more efficient job. This passage in 1 Peter 4 reminds me of that. It reminds me of, you know what? It's time to do some checking in. It's time to do some maintenance. It's time to get our life up on the blocks, check underneath the deck, pop the blade off, sharpen it up. Let's take a look at some things so that maybe we can start to figure out why it feels harder than it used to. So I love what Peter does here. But we're going to be in 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 12, if you've been turning there. And if you would, please rise and stand with me for the reading of Scripture, for Jesus' words, for God's words to us. This is 1 Peter 4, 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name." For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is sharp and active. And so, God, we ask that this morning you would wield your word as only you can. Pierce to our hearts, God. We do not need me up here. We need you. We need to learn from you. It is your authority, your word, your power that sets people free. And so we surrender to that. Would you lead us, God, in this time? As we continue to worship by opening your word, may it be pleasing to you. May this be worthy of your name. May this be edifying for your bride, the church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So what we see here in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19, if you'll recall, the theme of this letter is victory even in the midst of trials. Victory even when everything's going wrong. And just a reminder, things are going way wrong way more wrong for the church back then than they are for the church today. And so Peter is writing these group of believers, facing this persecution, and he's talking about victory. And here in in verses 12 through 19, you really see some specific mindsets, attitudes, and behaviors of victorious people. Uh, One of my favorite adults who influenced me in life was my high school soccer coach. And he set such a high standard, and I loved it. And one thing he would always say at the start of every preseason as we were getting ready for the year is he would say, look, I can't win the game for you. 
I can lay out the behavior of teams that win games, and then it's up to you if you want to rise to that behavior. Peter here in verses 12 through 19 lays out the behavior and the mindset and the attitude of victorious people. And so we have to be willing as we engage with God's word to ask, am I willing to rise to meet this standard laid out in scripture? Because what we see in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19 is that he calls us to several very essential things. And the first thing that Peter calls believers to, the first thing that, people, or that Peter says believers have to have is we have to have properly informed understanding. We have to have biblical literacy. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I mean, consider when we react to situations, is it with shock? Well, how could this happen to me? Surely I don't deserve this. How could this happen in this town? How could this happen in this county? How could this happen in this country? We're better than... Why? What makes you and I any different than the believers throughout the ages? I mean, do you realize how many countries today what we are currently doing is illegal? And we want to pity ourselves here? Why? Are we shocked by what we're going through? Do we have a properly formed understanding? Do we have biblical literacy? 1 Peter 1.6, a verse we already looked at in this sermon series. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. A few weeks ago, when Joe was preaching on 1 Peter 4, 1-6, he referenced Matthew 10, 16-25, where Jesus point-blank tells his disciples, hey, you will definitely be persecuted. John 15, 18 through 20, another instance where Jesus is speaking about this. And he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Romans 8, 16 and 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You have Philippians 3, 8 through 11. If I can grab the right bookmark. I promise you this verse is in there. Philippians 3, 8 through 11. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him in the power of res his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And then maybe most simply put, 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So is it possible 
that when we are shocked by suffering, when we are shocked by a rejection by the world, when we are shocked by difficulty, maybe we need to look under the hood and see where our biblical understanding is. Maybe we've been avoiding the passages that don't make us feel warm and fuzzy. I mean, what did Job say to his wife in the midst of his suffering? He said, wait, are we only supposed to accept good from God and not struggle, not hardship? I mean, God, look, I like the verses that promise me good things. I want those. The stuff that talks about hardship? No, 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 that's for other people. That's a pretty selfish interpretation of Scripture. That's a pretty selfish approach to Scripture. And so as we're doing examination of ourselves, as we're considering how we respond to the world around us, as we consider how we respond to our own relationships, and I'm not talking about this doesn't lessen the pain of it, this doesn't lessen the weight of it, but I'm saying, are we surprised by it? What's he say in, in 1 Peter 4? He says, don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. I mean, do, you, do we really think we're the first Christians in the history of the world to feel rejected by society? You really think this is new? I think Christians haven't been mocked for their beliefs before? We don't understand. I feel so insulted and, and made fun of by social media and by pop culture. And by, I think it's the first time. I mean, you, you realize that the name Christian, the word Christian, literally was created as an insult by society. Like the governor mocks Paul when he's before him in chains, and he's like, what, are you so quickly going to try and convince me to be a Christian? And Paul responds beautifully. He's like, yeah, not just you, but everybody. So are, are we shocked that the world wants nothing to do with Jesus or with us? Is it perhaps because our biblical understanding is not where it's meant to be? Peter asks the church this. He reminds these believers of this. He says, hey, look, believers, Christians, you have to have a properly formed understanding. And then the second thing we, we see that he calls the church to, he calls believers to, is we have to have a proper perspective so in this lawnmower analogy, we've scraped off the junk from the deck, we've peeled away the, the buildup, now we've got the blade off and it's time to sharpen the blade. Okay, do I have a proper perspective? My understanding is where it needs to be, is my perspective. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Rejoice in suffering. Rejoice in rejection. Rejoice in persecution. Why? Because it means we're sharing what Christ experienced. James 1-2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Luke 6, 22-23, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. Why? On account of the Son of Man. We'll get more to that later. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Acts 5.41 And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So this is the apostles. This is post-ascension, post-resurrection. The apostles are proclaiming Jesus and society responds by physically arresting them and beating them. 
before we start to claim how persecuted we are today, I'm going to throw this out there. I don't know a single Christian in America. I know people who have had this happen to them in other places. I don't know a single believer in America who has been physically beaten for proclaiming the name of Jesus. This is what just happened to the apostles. I mean, we're talking physical, real attacks on their persons. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Philippians 1, 29 and 30, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Did you catch how that opened? It has been granted to you. It has been given to you. This honor has been granted to you that you should suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. You know what strikes me as the only thing more painful than current persecution and suffering as the church? The only thing that strikes me as more painful than suffering and being persecuted as a Christian strikes me as far more painful to be ignored by the world and ignored by the enemy because we pose no threat to them. That strikes me as way more painful than whatever persecution and suffering we may undergo today as the church, what we may undergo as Christians. Because the suffering that we may experience today as Christians is temporary, but that pain, that pain of knowing that the enemy ignored me as a Christian because I pose no threat to him, that's eternally painful. I mean, that's saying, I want to be a soldier who's terrible at fighting. I want to be a soldier who has nothing to do with battles, who doesn't know how to use his sword, doesn't know how to use his shield, doesn't put on his armor. So we have to consider our perspective as Christians. I mean, are we any better than the people who have come before us, the believers who have come before us? Are, are we any better than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were thrown into the fire for worshiping God than Daniel who was thrown to lions? Than the apostles who were martyred, who were executed, who were tortured and imprisoned? Are we better than them that we deserve easier? So when we say things like, I don't want this, yes, I get it, we don't want the pain of it. I, I get that. I mean, if I, if I look at the painful moments in life, where I have suffered because of my faith, where I've lost friends because I wouldn't stop talking about Jesus. I had one friend in high school who was like, if you won't stop talking about Jesus, then I'm just going to stop talking to you. And I was like, well, I really enjoyed the time we've had so far. Because the alternative is I shut up about Christ. So when I say I want an easy life, I want a life that's no threat to the kingdom of darkness. I want to be a part of a church that isn't persecuted, a church that doesn't suffer. Why? Because we look nothing like Jesus? It strikes me as far more painful to be ignored than to be persecuted. Christian, do we have the right perspective when it comes to what we go through in this life? As we follow the example of Christ, as we follow the example of the church throughout the centuries. And then we see a third thing. 
that Peter calls us to. And this is where it gets personal. Peter calls believers to have proper self-awareness. And so those first two things that we just talked about, a proper biblical understanding, properly informed perspective, a proper perspective, if we are not willing to do self-honest evaluation, we're going to miss those first two. I'm going to tell you that right now. If I am unwilling to look in the mirror and do honest self-reflection, to be self-aware, then I'm going to miss the first two. But he calls believers to this in verses 14 and 15. He says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. He's getting at self-reflection. Are you self-aware? Why are you suffering? Well, people treat me badly. Well, why? Do they treat you badly because you look so much like Jesus? Or do they treat you badly because you're rude and impatient? And you're arrogant? I mean, there's a big difference between the two. And this isn't the only place in Scripture we see the importance of self-awareness in the lives of God's people. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. 1 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul writing, he says, For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. See, Paul says, I do self-reflection. I look at myself. I look at my life. I look at my behavior. I look at my speech. I'm not aware of anything that convicts me. But that doesn't mean I'm totally innocent. God is the one who judges. And we see this idea elsewhere as well. Psalm 19, 12 through 13. This is David writing, and he's writing kind of rhetorically. He's writing about himself. So when he refers to his, he's, re- he's talking about himself. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Other translations might say, who perceives his unintentional sins? See, he's getting at, we're blind to our own unintentional sins. And I mean, let's, let's think about this. Let's really think about it. Who, who perceives his own unintentional sins? Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. So when Mike cuts me off on the road with no turn signal, it's because he's an idiot. When I cut Mike off on the road with no turn signal because I want to get home for kickoff, it's, well, it's not really kickoff. It's I'm trying to embrace family time and relax. See, when Mike's impatient, that's a problem. But when I'm impatient, well, you have to understand my excuses and my rationale. Well, Sam, it's just patient. That's a fruit of the Spirit. Are we going to dismiss it that quickly? When I snap at someone, it's because you have to understand what I'm going through. When I'm rude, when I'm dismissive, you have to understand what I'm going through, and that justifies my behavior. When you do it, that's a problem. We justify our own unintentional sins. David says, Lord, declare me innocent from these. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Are we willing to do honest self-reflection? Are we self-aware? Or do we default to victim? Do we default to their fault, their fault, their fault? Surely I have done nothing to earn this. 
Search me and know me, God. Reveal my hidden iniquities. And I want to point at something specific he says in there. Because what's he say? He says, let no one suffer as a murderer or a thief. I haven't murdered anyone. I'm doing well. Jesus said, if you have anger in your heart, that's murder. Thief? I haven't broken it and stolen anywhere. Envy? Greed? Jealousy? Maybe we're not doing as well with these labels as we think. But then he says a meddler. And this is a, this is a term that pops up several places in Scripture. And it means someone who intrudes into matters that don't belong to them. This isn't a heroic intervention. This isn't there was a car crash and I jumped in and I saved someone's life. This is, this is a situation that has nothing to do with me that I have no business in. And I'm going to arrogantly insert myself into it. I'm going to obnoxiously insert myself into it. I'm going to gossip and insert myself in For whatever the motivation is, a meddler is someone who puts themselves where they have no business being. 1 Thessalonians 4.11 Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. 2 Thessalonians 3.11 For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. It's the same root, busy bodies and meddler. And it's the idea of someone who is so fixated on others' behavior that they neglect their own. That they are way more concerned with what, I'm way more concerned with what Steve is doing than with what I'm doing. I've said this before, I'll say it again. If the church were half as concerned with the church looking like Jesus as we were with the world around us looking like Jesus, we would be in a radically different place. If the church were half as concerned with conforming ourselves to the standard of Christ as trying to force unbelievers to conform to Christ, we would be in a radically different place. Man, church, are we self-aware? Are we more concerned with everybody else's behavior than with our own? Well, I just want to make sure Joe is doing it. No, man, let Joe worry about Joe. Sam, are you doing what you're called to do? If we're suffering as a meddler, if I'm suffering because I'm meddling in Joe's life, that's on me. That's not how I'm supposed to suffer. I'm supposed to suffer. I'm supposed to be persecuted. I'm supposed to be rejected and mocked and scorned and reviled and insulted because I look like Jesus. Are we willing to look in the mirror and say, do I look enough like Jesus that the world rejects me? This is what Peter calls the church to, what he calls believers to. <laughs> Anybody know Cinderella? Disney movie Cinderella? Fairy Godmother, Alakazam, Mixigaboo, all that? What's she say in the song? She says, put them together and what do you got? So, Bippity-boppity-boo. Peter does not say bippity-boppity-boo. But as we go through scripture, we do see Peter build these things together. So put them together and what do you got? Put together biblical literacy. Put together a properly informed understanding. Put together a proper perspective. Add in self-awareness. And what does it build to? What does Peter conclude with? Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So believers, 
with proper biblical literacy, with a properly informed understanding, believers with a proper perspective, believers with proper self-awareness will be believers who glorify God in everything, who seek to glorify God in everything. And we have to understand that word, glorify God. Because does that just mean sing praises? Does it, I mean, what does it mean to glorify God? Well, what that word means properly, what that word properly means is to ascribe weight by recognizing real substance. What that means in common language, like we actually talk, is it means recognizing and responding to God based on who he really is and what he's done. Glorifying God is a life of proper response to who he is and what he's done. And when you see this word pop up in scripture, you see these things. Listen to all of these. Matthew 15, 31. So the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Mark 2, 12, the paralyzed man. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Luke 2.20, the birth of Jesus, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Luke 13, a woman who has been physically crippled for 18 years, and Jesus laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. Luke 17, 15, where Jesus heals 10 lepers, then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. Luke 23, 47, now when the centurion saw what had taken place, the death of Christ, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Acts eleven eighteen. this is after Peter explains to the rest of the church that the Gentiles are offered salvation through Jesus. The people who had previously been rejected as unclean, as nothing to do with God, Peter explains to them, no, God told me that salvation is for them. Acts eleven eighteen. when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is Acts 13, starting in verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the words of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. We've looked at that word reviling in 1 Peter. It's not new when the church today gets reviled. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. 1 Peter 4.11 that we just looked at last week. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Revelation 15.1-4 through 4. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. 
And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed." Glorify God if we suffer as a Christian. I said a moment ago, Christian used to be an insult. And Peter is writing to the church and he's saying, no, it's an honor. You're going to suffer in that name? Man, count it praise that you are worthy, that you have been given the right to be called Christian. That God looked at you and said, I give you the right to be called Christian and to suffer as such. Rejoice in that. Glorify me in that. So when suffering happens, do we look at it and realize what has been done for us because of who God is and do we praise Him as such? Do we give ourselves to Him as such? He goes on and he gives two very specific examples of this. Glorify God by trusting Him and doing as He commands. Verse 19. He says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. 1 Peter 2.23 When Jesus was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. Just like everything, Jesus modeled this for us. That word entrust is a bank deposit. It's this is where this belongs for it to be best. Do we entrust ourselves to God? Do we say, you're sovereign, you're good. No matter what circumstances are going on, no matter what suffering I'm going through, no matter what persecution I may be facing at the hands of friends, at the hands of family, coworkers, bosses, whatever... They can mock me. They can insult me. They can reject me. God, I trust myself to you because your goodness is not in any way, shape, or form diminished but by what I'm experiencing. Let those who suffer according to his will entrust their souls to him. How did 1 Peter open? Let's go all the way back to the beginning. To those who are elect exiles according to the will of the Father. And we looked at the sovereignty of God is unchanged by whatever negative circumstance we're in. doesn't make it any less painful, but in a way it does. Because we understand there's purpose to it. We understand that it's an honor to get a chance to look like Jesus. So I'm going through something that is emotionally heavy. I'm going through something that hurts, that causes me to weep, that causes anguish. Man, I get a chance to be like Jesus. I get a chance to be like Christ. I get the honor of suffering for the name of Christ. And then he concludes with do good. Entrust yourself to God and do good. 
Our behavior is not dictated by external circumstances. My response to life, my approach to life is set by God, not by the world around me. I mean, we see this really kind of summed up in 2 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 14. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed as a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This is what Peter's getting at. He's like, don't be surprised. It's going to happen. It's not going to be easy, and that's a good thing. That's an honor. That's a privilege. That's a reward. In Hebrews, it talks about that no child, while being disciplined, thinks the discipline enjoyable in the moment, but looking back, realizes that it was for a purpose. It's the same thing with the church today. I mean, if we want to look like Christ, this is part of it. This is what Peter calls believers to. It's what we are called to today. So this week, as we consider these things, read Daniel 3, read Matthew 6, which was used in the opening call to worship, read John 14, and read Romans 15. Look for these themes. Look for these lessons. Look for these reminders of God's goodness no matter what, of the call on our lives no matter what of who God is and what He has done for us so that our lives might properly reflect the weight of that real substance. That our lives might be an appropriate response of outpouring of praise and light of Jesus who died for us. This is a church that glorifies God. Let us be that church. Apply the Acts model to these passages. How do they lead you to adore God, to praise God? How do they lead you to confess to God? How do they lead you to thank God? How do they lead you to make requests of God? And then the imitate Jesus part of this, of this passage. And what's Paul say? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. The call in the Christian's life, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, God's will is your sanctification, is our imitation, our conformity to the person of Christ. James 1.22, do not merely listen to the word and deceive yourselves, but do what it says. Please don't tell me great message if you have no intention of taking it with you 10 minutes from now. Because then I'm failing as leadership and you've missed the point. The point is to do it. The point is to be conformed to it. The point is to submit ourselves to it, to imitate Christ. So when we look at this passage in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19, we see that Jesus did all these things. That he sought to glorify God in everything. 
He prayed, Father, not my will, but yours be done. He had an awareness of God's will, God's sovereign will, and the goodness of that. And so he was willing to, he chose to, what do we look at in John 10 a few weeks ago? That Jesus chose to lay down his life. Jesus made this decision in his power and authority as God because he knew it was for the best. Jesus embraced suffering. Every step of his life was one step closer to Golgotha where he was crucified. So imitate Christ. Seek to glorify God in everything. Pray not my will, but yours be done. And trust God. Trust is one of those hard things. Because we're tempted to look at the obstacles. We're tempted to look at how bad things may seem to be. We're tempted to look at the pain. We're tempted to look at the grief. We're tempted to look at the despair. But that's not where we need to set our eyes. We need to set our eyes on Jesus. And that's what leads to the trust. That's what fuels the heart of trust. And then also do good. Church, do good this week. Look like Jesus this week. Treat your coworkers like Jesus would. Treat your neighbors like Jesus would. Your family members, the strangers you encounter in the parking lot, do good to them. This is what the church is called to. And more than that, this is what the church has been granted. This is the honor and privilege that God has extended to his bride, is to look like Christ, to imitate Christ, in order that he may be glorified. May that be the cry of our hearts this week. Please join me in prayer. Lord, Thank you for this right. Thank you for the privilege that it may be when we are insulted or mocked or rejected. Father, forgive us for when our perspective is, woe is me, pity me, feel bad for me. Forgive us for that grievous error in our mindset. For when it's painful, and Lord, it is painful at times, for the nights of tears, the days of tears, the days of numbness, for the times of grief and despondency, Lord, remind us of how good you are in those moments. For when the hurt comes, Lord, we don't, we don't belittle that. We just ask that in those times, you envelop us and remind us that you are conforming us to be like Christ. And so may we be comforted by that in those times of pain. We trust you, Lord. We, we trust you. We want our behavior to reflect that we trust you. God, make us like Jesus. Make Community Bible Church like Jesus. Thank you for the right to do so. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pastor Sam here. Thanks for joining us for a Sunday sermon. If you're interested in more of the sermons from this series or some of our past sermon series that we've done, you can find them at discovercommunity.org under the sermon file. Uh, otherwise, you can subscribe to this channel to make sure you stay up to date on all our content. Thanks for joining us.